Welcome to Atlas, the official podcast of the Monash International Affairs Society. In the upcoming episode, you're from Prayag, Wanuri and Asha as they interview two special guests, Eliza and Charity, from Halad to Health. This episode is from our COVID-19 interview series. The fourth and final episode from this series will be coming out next week, so keep an eye out. In the meantime, enjoy the episode. Um, hi everyone, I'm Prav and today I'm joined by Asha and Renui to interview Eliza and Charity from the international NGO Halad to Health. Um, and I'd like to welcome both of you to the to the podcast today. Um, Eliza is joining us from Australia and Charity's joining us all the way from the Philippines. Um, yeah, so I guess we'll start with the acknowledgement of country. So before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that Mayas and Monash University are situated upon the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We also extend our respects to all the peoples and nations upon which our audience and guests are gathering upon. So, Hella to Health is an international non-for-profit and a registered charity closing the gap in global health inequality through delivering free and accessible health education services to, the, to those most, most in need. Hella to Health does this by running preventative health education volunteer mission trips to some of the most disadvantaged communities in rural Philippines. They take university students, volunteers from Australia on a two week experience to teach on important health topics from dengue to depression in local schools and health facilities in the community. And they, say, sorry, and they sustain these mission trips through, through raising funds through a super affordable GAMSET and med interview to tuition course they run. The funds raised from these services go straight to the foundation in the Philippines and give free health education services to those who may not have access otherwise. As I mentioned earlier, we're joined by two guests today, Eliza and Charity. So firstly, Eliza is the co-founder and managing director of Halab to Health, an associate at Boston Consulting Group. Eliza leads the, group, leads the team to craft and drive the strategy to build the most sustainable but not profitable model and eventually makes the biggest dif difference possible. After seeing the depths of the global health inequality that still exists today as a university student, she teamed up with university peers and friends to teach about prevention of prevalent diseases in the most disadvantaged communities in rural Philippines. After the first humanitarian trip, this project became known as Halad to Health. In 2018, Eliza was named one of Australia's uh, Young Achievers of the Year for Social Impact, and she was recognized as Monash's Business School's Future Global Leader in 2019. Today, Eliza serves to guide the incredible team building Halad as it's been the most humbling experience for Eliza to see how much young people can achieve and to, and to work um, given the right opportunities to grow. Additionally, uh, we're joined today by Charity. Today, Charity began as an ambassador for Halad to Health at a school in which Halad volunteers and is taught, um, taught now the project lead at Halad to Health Philippines. She is a first year nursing student at Central um, Midanio University. She makes sure all the health education programs in her country are delivered with un unconditional empathy and is suited to the local context. During this pe recent pandemic, she has led the team to focus on youth mental health awareness, which is a current and growing problem in the country. Cool. So um, we'll start off as I guess our part one. So we have three parts. We'll start with um, for our audience. We have three parts, careers, and then questions about COVID-19 directed both to Eliza and Charity. So I guess starting on with our career questions. Um, yeah, so it's, um, I guess this is directed to both you, um, both Charity and Eliza. Um, it's so impressive to see students like yourself are really tackling global health issues, um, like health inequality. So I guess, um, directed to you, Eliza, what drove you to create Halad to Health? Yeah, thanks so much, Private. Before I begin, thank you so much for having us. This is such a great opportunity for us. Um, but yeah, I guess to preface um, this, I was all, I always knew that um, I wanted to get into sort of the social impact space um, ever since, you know, quite young. And I also knew quite young that I was a very entrepreneurial kind of person, which is quite um, different to sometimes what a traditional migrant family in Australia's child might, you know, take the path of. Um, so I ended up going into university studying biomedicine in terms of learning about that health stuff and commerce. So to really just go on about that entrepreneurial route, and I always wanted to start some sort of social business, maybe one day in the future, I thought it would come down 20, 30 years down the track. Um, but essentially, you know, um, Hallard was basically born on, on the shoulders of a lot of 
a lot of different social projects that definitely failed in its terms. So I want to preface it that way because it definitely wasn't an overnight, you know, one one time hit all success story. But essentially, um, on my first year of university, I was, you know, a complete um, just wanted to get a lot of experience in the health space and learn about sort of public health and global health. And so there was this opportunity to go and volunteer in, in the Philippines uh, with a foundation called Mahalika. And essentially what they did was they would provide free surgeries, especially sort of um, what was it? Cleft lip um, and palate surgeries to some of the most indigenous um, and far flung um, areas where some of these people who might have cleft lip, um, they might not be able to go to school or whatnot because of their disability, um, but they would have never been able to see a doctor for it otherwise. And so I thought it was so amazing that they were doing these free surgeries and they're taking me on board as this medical aid student. And I was so thankful. And I, I basically said to the um, doctors, you know, as a student, like, what can we do to make a bigger difference um, here or even do anything that we could help in any way, even if it's fundraising or whatnot and they're like actually no you can make a world of difference it's actually the prevention of these diseases and, and educating people on on why these diseases happen what are the under underlying determinants that cause this sort of thing uh, that really will make the biggest sustainable difference it's sort of almost too late um, when you get to a point where you need to have a surgery to to rectify the, the problem um, and so that's when I sort of already had this idea of making sure that oh, making the next sort of big project or coming back one day to do a health education um, mission trip. And that's exactly what we actually do today. Um, but essentially crazy thing enough, sort of in my third year of university, uh, one of my good friends from one of these rural communities in the Philippines actually called me and said, um, there is specifically sort of like an area that we could possibly start this at. Um, and essentially what happened was there was a hospital there that had asked for a bit of help in terms of donations or whatnot. And we sort of did that and did more in terms of going to the local schools and going to the local um, health facilities and teaching um, health topics that they had asked us to teach about. So I guess after that first sort of trip, we came back and it just grew in terms of momentum. A lot of students, so I went to Monash, um, a lot of my own cohort at Monash really wanted to go on this trip. It was it's crazy because essentially we just took a photo, a video of what we wanted the trip to be like and what the experience of, of teaching overseas to be like. We put it online and within sort of two weeks, we had almost over a hundred Monastrians apply for this trip. And so I guess the momentum sort of snowballed and that's that's sort of how, how it was created. Definitely with a lot of heart and with a lot of support from sort of our peers and our colleagues. Yeah, thank you for that, Eliza. Yeah, it's excellent to, again to see students actually engaging in this field. Again, um, just referencing some of our previous podcasts, we've interviewed a lot of like, professionals, but I think for our audience, it's important to know that there are students and student groups out there, especially like yourself, engaging the space in IR and global development. Um, yeah, so I guess my next question is, um, and this is addressed to both you, both Charity and yourself, um, can you describe the work that H2, um, so Hella to Health does and how it's differentiated between the Australian side of the operation and the Filipino side of the operation? Yeah, for sure. I might start this one off and I'll pass over to Charity. But essentially, um, we, we have a sort of social enterprise model here in Australia. Um, we are a registered charity, but we operate like a social enterprise, meaning essentially we have a service that sort of funds out our great work. And then in the Philippines, we operate as a foundation. So everything that we do is all about making social impact and the metrics that we um, you know, measure ourselves against are about the difference that we make. Uh, so we're sort of in Australia, our two big things is that we have a fundraising service. And the way we really do this is that we have um, a GAMSAT or GAMSAT essentially is, is a exam that students will take to get into most postgraduate medicine and um, basically have a suite of services that help students get into medicine um, and if they take our course or our interviews or, or whatnot um, then a, a portion of their proceeds go towards our charity um, and then the second big thing that we do as an Australian organization is that we run volunteer mission trips so they're about two weeks long in those um, semester breaks of the um, winter and summer breaks for university and essentially we take Australian university students we train them up for, um, in country and then we take them overseas for two weeks to go to some of these rural communities to go and teach in uh, these hospitals and these schools um, and it literally is open to, to anyone who would like to go on that um, opportunity and has a really good um, you know, passion for making a difference in the health space. And so that's essentially where we leave things um, and then we hand over to our Philippines team which is you know under the amazing lead of charity. Uh, should I also use my Australian accent? 
<laughs> Go for it. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, so the operations are really just uh, different um, on different ends because over on the Philippine side, this is where we can see most of the result of all the blood and sweat of the Australian team has shed. And we essentially run hospital and school-based programs. And the latter having the mechanism of the HALA team going to high schools and occasionally primary schools to teach about the most crucial health-related topics. Like uh, for high schools, we teach reproductive adolescent health, mental health, and even personal hygiene with the advent of COVID. And um, for primary schools, we talk about dental health, uh, dengue, and hygiene as well. And what's really great is that the schools that we go to uh, ask us to talk about these things. Take, for example, uh, dengue, where here in the Philippines, we get massive outbreaks, especially in uh, June, July, August, up till uh, December. And the dental health, where it's an issue that mostly people won't even consider here, especially here in Bukidnon. So the school would ask us to talk about these things and you know, uh, also for the hospital-based programs, uh, I never really got to experience this because I recently joined HALA like last August. But uh, what the team usually does is that they would go to hospital and uh, at the start until the end of the week, they would, uh, they would know and learn who they serve and uh, who to do a lecture on and do uh, lectures on the, in the waiting room. So they tap, the topic they go over are uh, prevention of rabies as well as, you know, we always have dogs roaming around the neighborhoods and, you know, also the importance of immunization and debunk some of the myths surrounding this issue. Because unfortunately here in the Philippines, there has been trust issues after uh, our recent Deng Vaksha release. So people really uh, are hesitant to have immunizations now. But luckily we have Halad to Health to you know, correct these misconceptions. And the team gets to you know, help uh, the people understand here in Bukidnon how, the, how these immunizations eradicate diseases. Uh, diseases. Um, also additionally though, we also run youth mental health programs and we attack it in three ways. So, one, we have awareness campaigns such as having short film festivals and competitions. It's a really cultural thing to use the art of filmmaking to be an avenue to speak our minds as youths here in Bukidnon and, uh, you know, here in the Philippines. And because the youth don't usually have the courage or even have the chance to speak our minds. And we use this, you know, uh, we use art to uh, express what we feel and then the second thing that we conduct is um, educational campaign which of which schools can also interact by joining competitions and winning prizes thirdly then we give uh, free mental health services for those who will register it's uh, basically like headspace for you on the australian side because unfortunately we uh, the philippines has no specific or big programs on mental health and Halad, thankfully, Halad provides the youth with it. And most importantly, now that COVID's been like crazy working up our mental health. Thank you. Thank you for that, Charlie. And thank you for that answer, Eliza. Um, I guess going on to our, our next question, uh, again, a question addressed to both of you. Um, were there any significant experiences in your past that drove you and influenced your decision to come and found and get involved in the NGO? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked this question because too often you see someone who are where they are at and, and you think that, you know, it was all on their own making. But for sure, I'm so grateful for all the opportunities and all the stepping stones along the way that have really, you know, helped me grow into the person I am today and the experiences that we've had to be able to apply them to make Halid the success that it is. Um, but first off the bat, I think in my second year of of university, I went on this program, it was called the Public Health Study Tour by Chi Chi's, which is 
the Australian Consortium of In-Country Indonesian Studies. And essentially we went across to some of these rural and then urban areas in uh, Indonesia and learn a bit about sort of um, their public health problems, which were actually relatively similar to the Philippines actually. Um, and I think that was where my sort of spark fled um, for making a difference in health in sort of those Southeast Asian places. Because obviously, you know, it's it's also, it's part of making a difference, but also it's finding um, the, the culture and the a place you connect with um, and the hospitality from the Philippines has been absolutely um, insane for us. So that was definitely what sort of sparked the desire to go and make a difference there. Um, and then I went on a few different sort of like social entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship programs, um, which actually, if you're a Monash student, is very accessible to us. So we have a, a Monash Generator Accelerator program, which I went through, as well as some other entrepreneurial programs, which is basically something that if you have any idea, they just help you make it into a reality and help you launch and take that first step, which is honestly the hardest part. Um, and then I also did another accelerator program from YGAP, which was specifically for uh, migrant and entrepreneur, uh, migrant and refugee-led um, social entrepreneurs. Um, and essentially, what they did was take this spin of sort of how can we turn um, these these business models into something in terms of um, you know making a difference in the end of the day. And so there were. Uh, insane amount of network of uh, founders from literally across the world and a lot of developing countries who could tell their story and tell us about the reality on ground for them and there's just so much learning that you can take from one's experience of you know there were founders there who literally started schools that became one school that became a network of schools that you know and it's really seeing how small things grow which were uh, you know those experiences that's what it essentially taught me those experiences um and so that's the same mindset that we took into starting hallard was like it literally was a student project between university students at the very beginning it became this thing that when sort of a lot of people applied then we did more of them and then now we're you know at the point where we're at now so um yeah but charity is also very young she's still in university and so um i'd love to hear about your experiences charity Oh, thank you for that, Achilles. Uh, for me, it's just really so personal because I get to have a mom who's, who mostly worked at local and international NGOs most of her life. I remember her going from place to place and country to country. And as I grew up, I really just love, you know, uh, serving people and just as how I see my mom do it. So uh then recently i got diagnosed with cancer which is totally a bummer for when you're at the at the peak of your school life so i get to spend uh, most of my senior high school days at the hospital more than i get to have the chance to go to school and all those times i realized how important health education is to the rest of my peers and peers and even to myself and timely though Hallad to Health visited our school last year and I saw how organizations such as this can help me get to do the things I mostly care about, which is service and health programs. So I guess that's it for me. Yeah, thank you again for those. Thank you again for those answers. Um, again, moving to, on to, I guess, our next question. And this one is directed to you, um, Eliza. Um, what challenges did you face trying to get um, Hallad to health off the ground initially. Right, absolutely. There was there were a ton. So let's just go through the top picks. <laughs> um, definitely, I mean, I think you you'll you'll always hear it in terms of red tape bureaucracy, but it really was the reality for us in the international um, development space in terms of when we started essentially Hallad, it wasn't actually about health education. The the hospital that really asked us to go across the first time was asking for donations, and that's actually what we did. Um, and so we sent over, you know, we basically, it's very easy to actually collect donations here in Melbourne. Um, it's very hard to get it in country and get it accepted. And so what essentially happened was we, we got all the donations here, we got it shipped over and essentially it got to the airport that we needed it to be. And my co-founder over there was the one who's going to go and pick it up. And, you know, the do donations that go in country there are unfortunately, you know, taxed on even if we're trying to make a difference, there needs to be so many people who, you know, governors who sign off on this donation is whatnot and whatnot. And so there's just so much, um, you know, paperwork that had to be done that we didn't know anything about. We just thought we're like, we're literally just Aussies doing good. Um, and 
So that's something that we faced to the point where, you know, for us to get those donations released, we paid for all the shipping, we paid for it to get there. Um, and it was just sitting on a box on the conveyor belt in the airport and they just would not release it unless we had like governors signing up on this to the point where, you know, my co-founder literally had to almost beg for it to, to be released so we could get it to the hospital. So that was a, a learning lesson and a big challenge for us where we just realized, you know, giving donations is just not going to be our thing and not going to be sustainable. Um, and then I guess the other thing was really, you know, when people think about international relations, for us, it was just like really relations were a challenge. It was really who do you know in country to make things work? There are There is so much of a hierarchical process of who needs to sign off on what, who needs to be the one who um, welcomes, up, welcomes us here so that everyone else can actually see that this is an official thing. Um, and it's knowing essentially who's who. And um, we are so, so, so lucky at Hallard that the first time we went across, we just met all the right people who opened those doors for us. Um, and I can imagine if you just don't meet those people and those opportunities don't open up then you know how hard it is to get something off the ground um and then I guess over the last year what I've learned sort of as a year one year two going into year two company is really the amount of time um it takes to get something off the ground is really all about investing in our people and investing in our team and we spend so much time on our culture and making our team work um, and I think that's something that's quite often overlooked is the amount of training process the amount of camaraderie that has to go into um, making something like this so those are probably the, the big things um, for me and just sort of also on the side I think a nuance for us starting as students as none of us had legal backgrounds none of us knew how a charity would run none of us knew the regulations around that so there were definitely a lot of legal things that we had to apply for and regulations we had to comply with which we had no idea of um, but I would say to that point that actually in Australia we're very lucky that we have a lot of pro bono services and it's because of the pro bono firms that did all of our legals and everything for us that made it happen so it, although it was definitely a challenge and really daunting like we had all the support in the world to get over that. Cool. Yeah. Again, I think that's something, I think that's an important consideration, especially um, to our listeners that I think mean, when we often hear about like NGO work, we often just hear oh, people go over there and it just happens kind of. And that's we don't really hear about those like background <laughs> red tape or like, knowing the right people, which is a, like, and as is in international relations, which is, you know, our other field, that's an important thing, just knowing the right people and knowing the right connections to make things happen. Mm. And, you know, projects can die or live on those kind of kind of principles. So yeah, thank you again for that. Um, again, moving on to our next question, and this is uh, directed to both you, uh, both you and Charity, although slightly different. So, uh, for you, Eliza, what is a day in the life of a director at um, Hell Out to Health like? And for you, Charity, um, what is the on underground operation like, and what is it like to work on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'll start it off, and then I'll hand over to Charity because we have similar but very different schedules as well. Um, but essentially, I think what a lot of people also don't see is charity structure that we also need to have a board. So as a director, you, you have your operational role as managing the team and then you have your board role as um, having your board of director duties. And so every day for us, it looks or for me specifically my calendar always looks very very different um, but to this point I guess I always try and set a, a, a day with an intention in terms of blocking out a specific day for a specific task or else like you just cannot juggle a million different tasks all at once but essentially in a week I would say um, it goes across three different big sort of things that I would do one is the first is definitely sort of our operations role and making sure that we are actually executing on those two big things of fundraising and making sure those mission that mission experience um, is fulfilled so in terms of our operations like I said sort of we have that course that is our sort of income generating thing so for us it's making sure that the marketing is constantly going out so that students are aware that we have this thing, making sure the content of the course is ready and at top-notch standard, we always take on the feedback, making sure on the other side of fundraising, sometimes we often do pitching at some of our partnership events and then also creating partners who would join in our mission and support us um, and then we can sort of do something back for them as well. So it's a range of those sort of things on a day-to-day -day, um, and then some other days in the week, I'll just leave to our board of directors duties and that just means that we all always Know, comply with those legal things that I was sort of mentioning before um, and then the the 
third big thing that I do, which I was sort of touching on, was the amount of time that needs to be spent in, in building a team culture, making sure that you're constantly updating the team and making sure that all the milestones that you go through, you make sure the team all celebrates together. Um, and so that is probably, yeah, the, the three things that my week consists of. Um, and I'm sure charity, very, very similar. Okay, so like, I'm gonna sound like a, a douchebag, a privileged person when I talk about my everyday tasks, tasks because I really do get busy. Just like what Atila said, every day is different and every week is different because we set our tasks each week and this one I'm very particular about because I usually have over 10, uh, 10 tasks for the week, excluding the ones I set for school. So for every programs, we usually have different roles. So when I joined Halad last August, I essentially had both creative and marketing work on my hands. So trying to juggle that was a bit mind-blowing, but then thank God I did manage. For the recent program we are having now, which is the short film fest and competition called Cinema Syed, I, just like what Atila said, I got to be uh, the project lead and oversee the whole team. So in all that though, I always keep in mind that and remind myself the, that the most important thing in my work uh, uh, is service and you know the service that I give to people making sure that they get an uh, 11 out of 10 experience from what I do because I do this for them not for myself and it's a different kind of satisfaction when you see the smiles of those who you care most about. Cool thank you again for those answers. And again, now just moving on to our last question before I hand off to um, Renui, who's that well, like content content area. Um, and this is again addressed both to <laughs> Eliza and Charity. Um, what advice would you give our listeners who also want to tackle social issues, either um, through studying their own NGO? Yeah, um, I love this question because before I actually started how to help, one of the big projects that I did was sort of teaching girls about entrepreneurship and specifically social entrepreneurship. Um, and one of the big end goal lessons out of that course was essentially this thing that I definitely live by and it's really that taking the first step is already miles ahead of not starting at all and the first step quite often like to in upon reflection the first step was definitely the hardest it's the most daunting um but I think also to remind people that the first step is not always glamorous. It's not going to look like you're doing a podcast with these amazing people. It's not going to look like you're getting an article written about you. Quite often it's the first step is so unnoticed and it's, you know, it could be taking um, a meeting with someone and asking someone to t tell you more about this space and learning more about this space yourself. For us, I can't even pinpoint what the first step was because there were just so many foundational things that we did in terms of um, making sure we had the right relations with the right people, making sure that um, we, I went on a voluntary experience myself so I knew what it was like to be on the other end. All those things can backdate to, you know, all those things accumulate to becoming the first step of something. So um, definitely, you know, if, if you um, really are passionate about, you know, doing something, just, just take the smallest step. Um, and on the back of that, also in terms of, I think the, the success of Hallett also came from a few different things. And one of them was definitely timing um, and a big thing. So I come from sort of like a, the startup space and, and know a bit about that culture. And what often happens in uh, pitches in the startup space, they, they take your pitch and they come down and they ask you just two things. And that's just why you and why now? And if you can, if you answer that question, you have to, justify the reason you have to make up all this fluff to answer those questions you've got to be quite honest with yourself and be like probably timing's not right you know not me right now I'm not in the right space but if you can truly say like you know the answer is truly just I care about this a whole ton and it doesn't matter you know what it takes doesn't matter how much time I sacrifice like I'm going to make it happen then like you're ready um so yeah those are the things for me just take the first step in timing Uh, um, for me, I haven't started an NGO, but there are definitely things that I learned from being at Halad and getting to spend my time with Atilid Sensei. One <laughs> is that perfection kills progress. Uh, the, the first project or output, output you make doesn't have to be perfect so it can go out. 
uh, to the world because it's never going to be on the first try. What's important is that you can give an output and with that output, you build your foundation. We've got to do things that don't scale in order to start up and grow. Of course, we've got to dream big, but um, it's important to start with small goals first. When pitching something, uh, we've always got to go back to what your audience really needs on, and focus on their satisfaction. Just like uh, what Paul Graham said, we've got to take extraordinary measures, not just to acquire users or audience, but also you know, to make them happy. And that's just really important and very like personal thing for me. Yeah. Oh, thank you again. Thank you, Atelis Sensei. <laughs> I feel so old when you say that. <laughs> cool. Thank you again for those answers. And I'll now hand ball to Anil. He will start our COVID-19 um, COVID section. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to keep my camera off because my Wi-Fi is very um, breaking up at the moment. So I'm um, sorry about that. Um, so this is directed towards charity. Um, charity, obviously, as Australian students, our view of the COVID crisis is quite Western-centric. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what the on-the-ground situation relating to COVID has been over the past year and whether the pandemic has affected disadvantaged groups that were already struggling to receive appropriate medical services? Yeah, um, I'm just going to start off, start off with an experience I had over the la last month. So... Um, I was having my regular checkup and as we were driving through, I saw a man along with, with his mates and they're not wearing their masks and just playing around with it. So Philippines has over 452,000 COVID cases right now. And this just shows how important health education is. And our communities here rare, rarely have access to these educational programs pre-COVID. And I guess just that's just, um, culturally, very cultural for us, us because health education is not a really big thing here that we give focus on, and that's just a very big problem. And that's what Halad is here for, you know, to give these health education programs to us. And I'm thankful that I'm part of something that's really making a difference here in our community. Mm. Fantastic. And it's really interesting because even though one could argue that Australia has good health education um, systems, we too have these issues of people not wanting to wear the masks. And I don't know if you've seen on the news, you know, huge protests against masks and lockdown. So um, it might be uh, rather than just a cultural thing that's, um, you know, quite isolated to Australia or the Philippines, it could be sort of this global sort of ideology of, of not wanting to... To, to do the right thing um, in terms of health. Um, Charity, how have Hallad to Health operations been impacted by the pandemic? And why do you see, and, and do you see these impacts lifting in the near future with the rollout of the vaccine? Yeah, I, I love this question. This is the question I really love the most. So far, uh, the impact that it has given Hallad to Health is very positive because we've, um, during these times that we are, you know, isolated, we've got, uh, we got the chance to focus more on our crafts and you know build our social media platforms which had over like 800 followers uh pre-covid and now we have over 3,000 going to 4,000 um uh likes now on our pages and you know the social media is where the people the youth get most advices rather than any physical advices we have here and uh, it's a digital age and i don't think that um, in the future, uh, that's uh, this impact's gonna lift, and I, I really do hope not because it's really positive for us. So that you know, when we see each other after this, will be unstoppable, and uh, we will get to um, join our uh, join our caps and do a much better service to uh, the schools that we will be visiting next year. Fantastic. Um, and finally, Charity, more broadly, how do you see the pandemic impacting um, the field of health promotion and health security heading into the rest of the decade? Oh, sorry. Um, there's a background noise outside. Okay. So sorry for it. It's very cultural here in the Philippines. I'm just, is it okay to mute for a bit? 
Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> we are so used to doing meetings with chickens and yeah, like, it's a hundred chickens in the backyard. <laughs> I love it. It's very like uh, a cultural thing here in Bukidnon to have chickens outside and you know uh cars passing by so um more on that um so on, on an individual uh side of things uh we usually give you know um it's really uh the thing that we have now is that uh the the uh the people are actually just more on um focusing on their health right now. And that's really, really good. It has given a positive outcome to the rest of the world because um, let's face it, um, most people don't even look at health as something that's really important for them. And, you know, um, we on the Hallad side, we usually give hygiene, um, hygiene education, personal hygiene uh, lessons so that we can avoid gastrointestinal diseases and right now we usually uh, and right now we give this hygiene ed lecture education so that other uh, people can know and will know how to take care of themselves especially now that on covid you know just washing hands you can avoid something uh, the covid-19 through just you know washing your hands and you know we are now conscious of our health and that's really good and you know just on the broader side of things is that you know we look at this as a um as a security for our health so going over to the 2020s i don't think that uh it, the philippines is you know um, has access to um to vaccines that are really reliable because it's not that uh we don't want to have access to these vaccines but we lack the resources to and you know that's just a really unfortunate, uh, unfortunate idea for us. So I think that this just goes through, you know, uh, having the health security to do it, especially now that you know uh, where the government is actually thinking of going back to face-to-face uh, -face classes this January without vaccines. And I guess it's something that we should really look upon and you know, give some ideas on right yeah, now. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Charity. That was very insightful. Um, I'll pass it over to, to Asha to talk to Eliza. Yeah, so um, Eliza, as uh, you mentioned, you have launched education and entrepreneurship programs to address um, education inequality. Um, what do you think is the importance of developing girls' education in order to um, address global health concerns? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I went to a girls' school, so my, my indoctrinated answer is hell, hell yes, it's so important. Um, but, you know, we all definitely going to a girls' school as well. You know, you, you always hear that educating a girl is the same as you educate a village, and, and that is so true. But I think what's important is, yes, to believe it, but also, yes, to take actions. Um, you know, UNICEF would, would go as far as they came out with this report saying that investing in girls' education, specifically in sort of developing and lower-income countries, really transforms the whole community and can, can, can transform the economy. Um, and that really comes back to a sort of a cultural thing, especially like you're mentioning and maybe developing um, countries was there's this cultural thing of, um, and I've only just re recently learned this through experiences of, across Southeast Asia was sort of quite often um, the female, whether they are the breadwinner or not, they'll be in charge of the finances in, in the family. Um, and so when you sort of give um, girls that, that opportunity to go get educated, to, to go have that opportunity to get a higher income, what comes with money is money is really just this thing that can help you make better or um, you know different decisions. It's just a change agent, and so you know when girls can you know have a higher income, they can make more decisions for the family that are better for their children and whatnot. Um, and so yeah, it's completely completely transformative, and it is definitely sort of um, a, a massive gap that exists specifically um, in more of those developing countries. And sort of to tie into why that's so important for us to focus on health education, um, you know, 
obviously schooling is so important, but for us, it's specifically that niche about why it's important to keep yourself healthy, to make sure that you, you know, prevent yourself from um, having disease or whatnot. Um, because the, um, the direct link to health is the World Bank came out with this stat that actually children of, of mothers with five years of education, primary education or less, had a 40% more likelihood um, to live beyond, did I just say that wrong? Let me just try that again. So I think I just said that the wrong way. Let me just read that again. Go ahead. Children. Um, I'm pretty sure I wrote that wrong. But children of mothers with five years of primary education are 40% more likely to live beyond age. More five. than five years of primary education, maybe? Right, okay, yeah. No, I was like, that's definitely wrong. Okay, <laughs> so, going back. So why it's so important for us to focus on sort of um, health education and sort of the, the link between um, making sure that girls are educated to sort of our health as a, as a general population is that the World Bank basically count with this um, statistic the five statistic which is that children of mothers with a primary education of five years or more are 40 percent more likely to live beyond the age of five and so it's really transformative when a, a girl becomes a mother is well educated has children she knows how to take care of her uh, her children and her family um, and unfortunately it's it's in developing countries where less than two-thirds of um, girls actually are able to just complete primary school and that's just the basic five years of, of primary school um, and you know, um, for in comparison, for us, in, for example, in Australia, it's very close to about 90% of girls will complete their, their primary education. So it's a, a drastic difference. Um, and so, so important for, you know, um, the global health inequalities in the world. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I 100% agree with the sentiment. I went to an all girls school as well. So fully understand that. <laughs> um, so moving on to our next question. Um, in 2015, the United Nations developed its 2030 um, Agenda for Sustainable Development, which um, has the 17 sustainable development goals at its core. Um, these goals, um, of course, include things like eliminating hunger and poverty, um, increasing the quality of um, health access and education around the world. How do you see your organization interacting with uh, the sustainable development goals? Yeah, absolutely. So on the back of the last question, sort of we're definitely intertwined between advancing education and advancing sort of health outcomes to the to the SDG that's related to health outcomes. A lot of them is very disease specific. So for instance, malaria is on there, tuberculosis is on there. Um, and a lot of those communicable but communi I can never I have never I've done four years of biomedicine. I cannot say that word. Communicable diseases. Um unfortunately are very much focused in some of these uh, lower income developing countries that are in the tropics. Um, and so for us specifically, how we address them is, is again, um, for example, especially with primary school children, um, like Charity said, we have a school program where we teach about dengue every time the outbreak happens or in about the sort of rainy season time. Um, and so, you know, we can directly affect those outcomes by educating the children about where not to play, where, how to identify mosquitoes, when not to go out, when will the mosquitoes be there, how to make sure that your home is not actually a mosquito nesting uh, breeding ground. Um, and so for us, it's all about the prevention of, of a lot of these communicable diseases, as well as now transitioning to, like Charity said, sort of mental health aspect, which is a non-communicable disease. Um, and so also, coming back to what we often study in sort of public health um, um, public health subjects or whatnot is that the the one of the prime actually I'm going to skip that because I have no idea what I was going to say on that but essentially um, also to the to that point was just how important it is to teach about um, prevention rather than sort of the treatment a lot of these things um, because there are absolute flow-on effects when it's too late um, and when treatment is already too late. And I'll, I'll tell you the story of one of the girls that we met on the first ever time that we went on to the, uh, went over to the Philippines. There was this girl who was, I'd say 12, 13. Um, she was taking care of uh, one of her sisters who had just had a baby. Her sister was 19, uh, just had a baby. The baby had a heart condition. They were staying in the hospital for a month. So that unfortunately 12, 13 year old was pulled out of school for a month, but it was okay. She, she could have gone back. She went back to school. She was from the mountain areas. 
Uh, and the next time we came back to that specific hospital, it was already six months later. And that same girl was, was in the hospital and she was actually nursing her father and her father had tuberculosis. And unfortunately tuberculosis is this sort of disease where it's very latent in your um, lungs and, and you have to be on treatment quite literally in the hospital day after day taking pills for maybe three months on end. So she got pulled out of school again. Um, and by that point she had, she had taken that much time off school that she just she wasn't even confident to go back. Um, and you know, for her, that's sort of the end of her schooling journey. And so that's why it's so important. Maybe she didn't get ill herself, uh, but she was became the primary caretaker of the home when she was 12, 13. Um, and that completely changes the trajectory of her life. Her dreams of to become a nurse were, you know, unfortunately shattered by that time. And she'll just always have to be sort of caretaking for her ill. Um, family. So that's why it's so important for us uh, to work on sort of the prevention of a lot of those diseases because um, you know, tuberculosis, um, making sure that a child has enough uh, weight by the time that they're born, all completely preventable um, and they have so much, you know, so many flow-on effects. Yeah, I mean like it's it's always more jarring when you actually think of like the the grassroots like people that it's actually affecting and like mm. just the little things that like you were saying just teaching kids how to be safe and to make sure that their homes are not um you know going to be easily accessible by insects or diseases and things like that um, which is really important um moving on to our last question for this podcast um what in what ways has um international politics of recent times influenced or impacted your organization um and what would you like to see governments do to uh, help and aid ngos yeah absolutely so we could probably answer this on two fronts there's, there's definitely like things that have happened in country um in the philippines and things that, that have happened sort of in country for us here in australia um but I guess, like I was mentioning before, taxation on international donations has only been sort of like a recent thing in the Philippines. And so it was quite easy for us to bring donations in and to help these under-resourced communities before. And it's been so much harder uh, for us now. But I think also in country in the Philippines, for example, um, and the Philippines is just going to be an example for a lot of these um, more developing countries, was is that there are a lot of... Um, NGOs, a lot of non-for-profits that exist, a lot of foundations um, that are erected by you know, almost the everyday person could do that. That's that's quite literally, if you go down the street, there's a foundation, 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 just street after street. Um, and so it's so oversaturated that um, unfortunately, you know, you really can't tell who's doing good and who's just erecting something for the sake of having a foundation and that just sounding cool. Um, and so there is almost, you know, for us there's minimal, absolutely nada support from, um, you know, um, the government and country right now. Um, and so, you know, that definitely could improve in any, you know, any capacity would be great. Um, but for us specifically here in Australia, before COVID happened, there were already a lot of restrictions for us. For instance, we're taking over Australian university students and everyone needs to have insurance. And essentially, unfortunately, um, insurance companies, you know, don't even let um, our students go if it's at a red zone. So we, we couldn't have run our missions if um, Mindanao, which is the place that we went to, changed from a red zone to an orange zone. And so that was, that was a uh, a policy or a regulation that um, was really hard for us and thank thank goodness it changed over to an orange zone but to the backstory of that essentially you know just because one island essentially had a, a small place with um, insurgent activity on the on the very very uh, west coast it meant that the whole island which is a massive island uh, couldn't get any international aid for a very long time and so that's why you know Mindanao which is the southern island of, of the Philippines is the biggest contributor to the national economy but unfortunately gets the least amount of um, international or health aid and um, what else for us, obviously, given COVID situation where international organization travel restrictions have literally meant that we don't get that presence in country, which has actually been, you know, a lot of people ask us like, why, why, why continue bringing Australians over when you can have an in-country team, which we actually do. Um, but there is definitely just like a, um, morale sort of thing when when you know global citizens come together and so not being able to do that has obviously been really difficult and even when international restrictions on travel lift and they are in place for all the right reasons and you know that's they should be in there for longer but when they do um lift you know it's also a consideration for probably they're going to lift a bit too early for a country which doesn't have complete vaccination co uh, coverage. So for us, it's making the decision of, okay, unfortunately we're going to rural isolated communities that have a very low um, you know, health facility capacity. They are a very vulnerable um, community. It's our duty of care to make sure that we don't go, even if 
uh, the international restrictions ease, there needs to be a certain sort of level we put on, um, level of, I don't know what the word is, um, care that we put on ourselves to make sure that, you know, we don't pose a risk more than, you know, the benefit that we can do in the country. Um, and, and then sort of the last point is sort of, um, I think a lot of people don't recognise that for a lot of Australian charities in Australia to be able to fundraise nationwide, there are a lot of regulations and it actually is operated state by state. And so there's a lot of licensing to apply for and um, whatnot just to be able to run a, a national fundraiser. Um, so that was, that like fortunately for us in Australia, that is being sort of slowly changed um, and they're re recognizing that there's a lot of red tape in that area. Um, and so within the year, hopefully that will be sort of or not this year, within the next year, um, that will be something that gets changed. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. I did not realise there were so many different like facets that I just like never considered, um, which really just makes the work that you do even more amazing. Um, but just to close up, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. Thank you to um, Eliza and Charity, of course. Um, we've discussed a really wide variety of topics uh, like the impacts of NGOs, COVID-19, global health in the future, and of course, your work at Hallett to Health. Um, and I'm sure all of our listeners will have taken a lot out of your words from today. Um, just to finish off are there any projects you would like to promote um is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with and where can our listeners follow um, your projects yeah absolutely well thank you so much for having us um if you know your listeners are interested in joining our missions when they go back hopefully november end of 2021 maybe start 2022 if you're still an australian student who's really passionate about um going or over in country, getting that experience and really just seeing uh, what making a difference in, in some of these countries is like, you are more than welcome to um, join us. And we have our expression of interest form for those missions open now on our website. So it's www.hallettohealth.org. Um, but also if you're someone like Pramind and you are studying to become a med student, and if you would like to um, support us and go through that GAMSAT um, tuition and or med interview tuition with us, um, we also have courses that are available. You can enroll in also on our website. So that's how you can um, support us in Australia. And I'll throw over to Charity if her internet is up, which I actually don't think it is. Maybe not. But essentially, if you would like to see some more of the work that, are you good? No, no, you're not good. Okay. Uh, if you, so Charity's internet is being yeah. <laughs> but um, if you'd like to see and support some of the work that we do in the Philippines currently actually tonight we air um, the finals of one of our um, short film festivals which is all about uh, the theme is all about mental health and so basically it's a mental health awareness campaign which we get a lot of the local students to basically share what their experience is like and, and make a film about it um, and so that goes live tonight actually jokes you're going to air this not tonight let me say that again so if you'd like to support us in um, and see more of the work that we do uh, in the Philippines and um, one of the projects that we're currently finishing up for the year uh, is one of these short film festivals which is centered all about mental health awareness and having young people uh, present their uh, short films about what their experience is like in country and if you'd like to just learn more about that you can have head over to the Hallett to Health Philippines Facebook page um, but also as missions go back, it is incredible to have a diverse range of students that are from Australia who would like to uh, learn more about the culture and, and the Philippines team love hosting um, our Aussie volunteers in country. So when that does go um, across, would love you to join. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. No worries at all. Our pleasure. We hope you enjoyed that episode of Atlas. Atlas is the official podcast of the Monash International Affairs Society, or MIAS. MIAS is an apolitical student society at Monash University, Clayton, that works towards establishing a network of students passionate about international affairs. To become a member to get access to MIAS perks and events, such as our Model United Nations workshops, our roundtables featuring experienced diplomats, or our fun social events, go to portal.msa.monash.edu. Sign in, go to buy club membership, select Myas and fill out your personal details. You can follow Myas on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn, all of which are linked in the description, or visit our website at myas.org.au. If you have any general queries or contributions following this episode, please email us at atlas at Thanks for listening. See you next time.